to A Texan's View of the World with your host, Jeb Bashaw. Howdy and welcome to the fourth edition of my podcast, A Texan's View of the World. We are now on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and we just added friends at iHeartRadio. So you can follow us at any of those places and we look forward to you listening in and hearing what we have to share. I'm Jeb Bashaw and today, as I said, my topic is what I perceive as our collective loss of civility. As you know by now, I'm a proud fourth-generation Texan. Texas is a wonderful state. It's not just a geography. It's a state of mind. You know, for my New York friends, when you drive 10 hours west of Houston, you can only get to El Paso. You can't even leave the state. Think about that for a second. If you drive 10 hours south of New York, you can only get to Florida, and you'll go through six states trying to get there. So needless to say, Texas is a very, very big state. And it's easy to be civil in a big state. You just have to make way, cross the street. In fact, there are some counties where you might not see anyone for miles and miles. So being civil isn't that hard in Texas, as opposed to a place maybe in New York, where you've got three million people on an island a fifth the size of Galveston, Texas, bumping into each other. It's a little more difficult to make way. So while I think civility is definitely on the decline in this country. Maybe in some places it's because of geography, but I don't want to talk about that today because I think that it's about respecting folks and where they came from and what they believe. And I believe that most Texans are good-natured, happy, resourceful, self-reliant people. We don't want a handout in Texas, but if hard times come, we're the first to offer a hand up. There's a quote that's frequently misattributed to Voltaire that was actually written by Evelyn Beatrice Hall. And she said, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. As I said, that was often referred to by, from Voltaire, but actually it was a writing she made about the writings of Voltaire. And now for a short history lesson. Voltaire was born Francois-Marie Arouette in 1694. He enjoyed a better education than would have been typical for someone of the middle-class upbringing and gained early fame as a playwright. But his biting wit often got him into trouble with absolutist French rulers and the like-minded Catholic Church. I'm delighted I do not live in the time of Voltaire, or we might have been friends and perhaps cellmates. In his early 20s, he insulted an aristocrat and was sent to the Bastille. The Bastille was an upper-class prison where King Louis XIV sent those that had angered him. Think of it as a club fed today, but without TV, tennis courts, and the Internet. Similar to what my friend Dinesh D'Souza was sent to prison for when he gave a campaign donation to one of Obama's opponents. Needless to say, Voltaire's experience was a sufficiently unpleasant experience that he subsequently avoided saying anything that might be considered directly critical of the church or the state. It was also a place where they sent journalists who defied what, he, what we would call today political correctness in the eyes of the king. Do you see a corollary to today's world? Because of this experience being imprisoned for, quote, thought crimes, Voltaire instead mastered the art of couching his subversive thoughts in irony, obfuscation, and satire. As an example, if he wanted to scold the clumsy reputation of the medical establishment, he might observe, quote, Despite the ministrations of the greatest doctors of Europe, the patient survived. Ergo, this translated into Texan would be, 
Bless his heart, despite all the doctor's efforts, he still survived. In Texas, when someone says something stupid, challenging, or unbecoming, we don't immediately start yelling at them. We just smile and say, bless your heart. And if you aren't from the South and you've never heard that term, let me assure you, you would rather be called a horse's ass to your face than be told, bless your heart. But that's the point. Being civil isn't that hard. I would suggest that calling someone a horse's ass kind of escalates the situation pretty quickly. Saying, bless your heart, can mean a lot of things. What it meant when my grandmother, Louise, said it was, honey, I don't think you understand the situation, or I don't think you quite know what you're talking about. Today in lawyer's parlance, it will be a chance to redirect, a chance to maybe think again before speaking. Let me give you an example in today's world. If I say, I believe in school choice, rather than someone responding, that's interesting, why do you say that? Too often today, the response might be, that's because you're a racist. Now let's think about that on its face. Two people are discussing the educational system in the United States. That is the topic. There is no other concept that's been introduced. Yet in today's world, the immediate default is an accusation of racism. Really? That's where we are. The person I'm speaking to knows nothing about me, about where or how I was raised, where I went to school, how I came to this conclusion after years of thought. But interestingly, they don't discuss the issue. They immediately go to the most vile possible attack. As I lament, the world lacks civility. When I grew up, I was in debate. Okay, I'll admit it, I was a debate nerd. At six feet tall and 145 pounds in high school, I was too short for basketball, too slow for track, and because I really didn't like to hit people or get hit by people, football was really not an option. So thankfully, I was recruited to be a debater by our debate coach, Michael Hicks. I have to say I was not a great student. Not because I was slow, but I was simply not challenged. I was probably too smart for my own good. As an example, I figured out pretty quickly I was never going to use geometry for the rest of my life. But don't get me wrong, I'm a huge Pythagoras fan. I got it. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. No problemo. Further, I didn't see physics as something that really interested me either. But debate, that interested me. I loved it. The research, the preparation, the chance to compete. It was mano y mano. A chance to exchange ideas with really, really smart people in a timed format. You had to hear what they said, agree or rebut what they said, and you had to do it all in eight minutes. It really was a thrill. One of my favorites was debating the Bronx School of Science team. We were in Ponca City, Oklahoma, don't ask, and my partner Colin McDonough and I drew the best team in America, purportedly the Bronx School of Science A team. These guys were top gun. As a frame of reference, my debate partner was a valedictorian in our class and is now a very successful doctor on the West Coast. On the other hand, I graduated 122 out of a class of 135, three spots behind a kid that couldn't speak English, but had been recruited from Mexico because he could run a four-minute mile. That's the way the Jesuits roll. You don't think Patrick Ewing was recruited to Georgetown because he was going to be a Euclidean geometrist, do you? But that story is for another day. Back to my story. So these guys are from the Bronx. They talk funny. I mean really funny. And they talk fast. Lightning fast. They get to go first. 
To this day, I'm not even sure what the topic was. I think it was penal reform or nuclear reactors or something. Their first guy talked straight for eight minutes without even taking a breath. He was going so fast and with that funny accent, I'm not even sure what he said, but he sounded smart as hell. So the way the debate works is they go, you go, they go, you go. Intersplice is a chance for what's known as cross-examination. So since I'm our second speaker, I get to cross-examine this guy. Now, I'm not feeling good about the situation at all. You have prep time, but it's limited. And think about it. I'm sitting next to the smartest guy in my entire school, and I look at him for some glimpse of confidence or hope. I say, so what do you think? Got any questions you want me to ask? And I'll never forget. Colin looks at me, sniffs the back of his hand, which in poker would have been considered a tail. That means he's got something, and he's about to let you have it. So now I'm excited because he is really smart. And all I have to do is stall for three minutes, and then he's going to clean their clocks. He looks at me, and he smiles, and he says, I got nothing. Now, there's an old saying, if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. So I'm going to go baffle them while the smartest guy at Strike Jesuit comes up with a plan B. There's a reason for this story, and that is how people used to communicate. It was an intellectual exercise. Ideas were shared. They were discussed. If you had a really good argument, reasonable people could disagree or agree to disagree. But it didn't devolve into burning buildings, calling people vile names. That's what scares me the most today about our lack of civility. There seems to be no end to the vitriol, and there really seems to be no point to it all. Shocker alert, I'm a conservative, fiscally and socially. This would be one of the least surprising things you would ever find out if you spent 10 or 15 seconds with me. But it doesn't mean I won't listen to other ideas. In fact, there's nothing more I like than to engage with a thoughtful person who has a different opinion. Patton once said, if we were all thinking the same way, then someone isn't thinking. When I used to drive carpool, my kids laughed because I listened to NPR in the morning and I read the New York Times. One time, one of the kids said, why do you listen to two clearly liberal opinions? And while my default would have been to use it as a learning experience and falsely quote Voltaire, I smiled and said, because kids, you got to know what the other side is thinking. In fairness, that was probably a better learning experience than quoting Evelyn Beatrice Hall. As my mom used to say, there's a reason God gave us two ears and one mouth. It's because you're supposed to listen twice as much as you talk. So where do we go from here? How do we ratchet down the vitriol and ratchet up the conversation? I don't know the answer, but I do have some ideas. Let's start with why are we tearing down statues? Congressmen who have served 40 years in Congress are all of a sudden finding these statues offensive? I believe in Santa Claus, but I don't believe in that. Do we not know the lessons of history? The people who are tearing down the statues are doing the exact same things that have failed in the past regimes, things that Mao, Marx, these folks all sit on the dust heap of failed ideas, and yet today's children, and that's what they are, mindless children, think they are making a difference. Is there some move afoot to refight the Civil War? Well, that's an interesting question. We haven't had slavery except economic slavery in the last 150 years, so I'm going to say that's not it. In fact, there's no other country that has done more for civilization than the United States of America. Is there systemic racism? You mean like an actual system? No. 
We were the first country to outlaw slavery, and we have spent 150 years fixing it. How can a man like Barack Obama be elected not once, but twice, in a country that is predominantly white, moreover a man born to a Caucasian woman and a black father, and raised by a single mom and her parents, become the President of the United States? Needless to say, he was not born on third, as we say in Texas, and he got all that, including two Ivy League degrees, and as I said, became our president. Why aren't we celebrating that instead of trying to tear down the very institutions that made that possible? That doesn't happen in Kenya or England or Italy or Germany. It doesn't happen in Venezuela or Mexico or China. I can't help but think of Jackie Chan when I think of the song War, written by Norman Whitfield. You know, war. Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Now, I know you won't be able to get that out of your head for the rest of the day. Sorry about that. But later in the lyrics, he writes, War, it ain't nothing but a heartbreaker. War, friend only to the undertaker. And then he continues, War is the enemy of all mankind. War has caused unrest within the younger generation. And think about it. That song was written in 1969. But here we are, 51 years later, and our streets are filled with young people terrorizing businesses, firebombing police cars, painting federal buildings, and tearing down statues. Why? Well, some people say police brutality. All evidence to the contrary. Police brutality, in the larger sense, is a myth. It's so overstated and underpracticed, it's like the Loch Ness Monster or being hit by lightning. Let me give you the actual stats. Last year, nine unarmed black men were killed by police. That's it. That's the totality of the number. And who reported that number? The Washington Post. Not exactly known for their conservative leanings. How many people were hit by lightning last year? 51. And of those, 10 died. Try having a conversation with anyone on the left about this topic. They will challenge the numbers, the source. They'll tell you it's underreported. Let's try Black Lives Matter. This grew out of a protest where another criminal, who was high on marijuana and cocaine, attacked a police officer. After an extensive review by local, state, and even the Department of Justice under President Obama, everyone found the shoot to be justified. Try having a conversation about that. That's why there's no civility. We can't even agree on the facts. But to take it one step further, finally, if Black Lives Matter... Why is the instance of crime in neighborhoods 90% black-on-black? Why are countless children murdered in Chicago each year? Why don't we address the real problems? So I believe that the loss of civility is because the ground rules have changed. We can no longer have a conversation about facts because, remarkably, the facts are dismissed. They are ignored. The meme wars have taken over in lieu of actual discussion points. By the way... Have you looked at the rioters and looters? They are predominantly white, suburban, college-educated, with absolutely nothing to do other than to go into the streets, particularly after this most recent COVID lockdown. They aren't protesting U.S. intervention in Vietnam like their grandparents. They aren't at risk of being drafted. They aren't even protesting U.S. involvement in the Middle East, which I would applaud. For them, they're just lost. They have very few social skills. Their communication skills, other than texting, are zero. They aren't getting up and putting on a suit and tie and going to work to hope to buy a home, get married, and have children. 
I believe they are the lost generation, and for me, it's sad. This generation may be the first not to do better than their parents. But sadly, there's good news. There is a $10 trillion wealth transfer coming in the next 10 years as the baby boomers pass on. And in some part, for doing nothing other than outliving everyone else, this generation would inherit $10 trillion. This ought to be interesting. There's an old saying, if you're under 30 and not a liberal, you have no soul. If you're over 40 and not a conservative, you have no money. This is going to be interesting to see those two values collide as a sociology experiment. And I'll give you a sneak peek. Google the Walt Disney heirs, the Rockefeller heirs, and you'll see it's not pretty. Finally, I want to talk about the elephant in the room, politics. For the last three years, remarkably, we've had an ongoing discussion about the last election. I can't remember one time in my life where three years later, the other side is still trying to avenge, rationalize, or pulverize a result. The people spoke, and the people spoke loudly. When McCain lost, he went back to the Senate. When Romney lost, he went back to doing whatever Romney does. Even Al Gore went on to become a billionaire, making fiction movies about the end of the world and eventually selling out to Al Jazeera. In hindsight, at best we can agree we had two extremely flawed candidates. At worst, it's a loser mentality like I've never seen. When was the last time the losing candidate didn't concede? This wasn't Gore Bush in 2000. There was, in fact, a clear winner, and the losing side wouldn't or couldn't concede. It makes you wonder if they knew something we didn't. Maybe Trump wasn't supposed to win. Maybe it was, quote, in the bag. The things that have come out since then sure seem to indicate that that was the case. Since I'm a Texan, the stories of LBJ's escapades are well known. LBJ was ruthless. He was a political animal. He was crude, crass, misogynistic, racist, and frankly not a nice guy. But everybody knew that. Our last two candidates were the embodiment of all the worst of LBJ, and everyone knew that. Neither candidate was an unknown. One was a lifetime politician, and the other was a reality TV star, for Pete's sake. Yet this is who our electorate put up as the two best candidates for president of the United States of America. The founders must have been chuckling. They saw this coming 244 years ago. City dwellers versus farmers, north versus south. And yet, in their wisdom, they convinced 13 colonies to come together to form a more perfect union. Not a perfect union, but a more perfect union with all the hair and trouble that trying to combine humans brings with it. So that's where civility should bring us all together. It should make us understand that with all of our differences, differences of color, race, religion, education, economic wherewithal, that we are truly a melting pot. More importantly, we are the greatest country in the world. We don't make the country of the future better by trying to bring down our past. We come together over beers, not Molotov cocktails. We appreciate our differences rather than try and subjugate the others to our way of thinking. I think the idea of white privilege or Black Lives Matter divides us, period. I think the idea of straight or LGBT divides us. I believe that God created us in his own image, and since none of us have ever seen God, we might just take a deep breath and let him handle it. At worst, he started all this in the first place. 
I don't know what color or sexual orientation Cain and Abel were, but I know one of them hit the other with a rock over the head. So being uncivil isn't something we came up with on our own. It's been going on since the beginning of time. But now is our chance to make a more perfect union. Remember, civility doesn't weaken a message. It helps others hear it. Finally, I know you've all been sitting on the edge of your seats to know how we did against the Bronx School of Science. As you know, my wife, Laurel, is my biggest fan. She says, I see things that others don't. Did I mention she's my biggest fan? They once asked Wayne Gretzky why he was such a great hockey player, and he said, I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it's been. Well, I was no great Wayne Gretzky of debate. So as I got up to speak against the Bronx School of Science, I realized I had to slow the clock down. We were in Ponca City, Oklahoma. Ponca City, Oklahoma is small town USA, not New York City. I looked at our three judges, all high school teachers, and I slowed the game down. I didn't try to speak as fast as my buddies from the Bronx or be the smartest guy in the room. I decided to calmly and civilly discuss the topics we were assigned. You see, the Bronx kids, like it or not, were not trying to impress the judges. They were trying to impress my partner and me. And I knew I only had to impress the three judges. They didn't know anything about the Bronx School of Science or straight graduate college preparatory or probably even cared. So when we finished, all the debaters meet near what's referred to as the tab room. That's where the results are tabulated to find out who moves on to the next round of elimination. They don't read it aloud. It's not that dramatic. They just post the results. My debate colleague and I gathered in, and there it read, Strake Jesuit, McDonough Bashaw, win 3-0 decision versus the Bronx School of Science, advance to the next round. In ending, I hope you can tell my passion for this subject. I'm reminded of the great quote of John F. Kennedy, someone who governed in the most challenging of times. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. Let both sides explore what problems unite us instead of belaboring those problems which divide us. I hope you'll share my podcast with your friends. Thank you for your continued support and listening in. And as always, remember yesterday is gone, tomorrow is a mystery, and today is the present, and that's why we call it a present from God. I'm Jeb Bashaw, and this is my podcast, A Texan's View of the World.